You are listening to the cycling podcast at the 2023 Tour de France. Today we're in Bayonne. Welcome to Bayonne at the end of a fast, frenetic stage. Well, the finale of it was anyway. My name's Lionel Burney. We are overlooking the river. We're enjoying a post-race beer. I'm with Francois Tomazo. Good evening, Francois. Good evening. And Mitch Docker. Good evening. Well, Francois, tell us a little bit about where we are, first of all. We're well, in Bayonne, famous for its ham. We'll get back to it later. Uh, we're in a place called Le Bistrot des Halles. And there are lots of Bistro des Halles in France. You know, it's, it's a market hall. And, and, and lots of market halls in France, especially in the south of France, for the past five years, it's become a trend to have a bistro in the market hall. And it's very trendy. And Bayonne, like many other towns, has exactly that. So that's where we are. We're overlooking the river that's called La Nive. And, uh, you know, there's bars and terraces all along La Nive. La Nive being an affluent of Ladour. And, and actually the, the, the way they converge in Bayonne and then go straight to the sea. The sea is not very far away. We heard from a colleague of ours that this is the second or third most expensive town to live in in France. Is that right? What? Or is that, is well, that Biarritz? Uh, no, that it's, right? Biarritz. Biarritz, it's Biarritz. Sorry, which is just on the coast. Yeah, it's it? Biarritz. It's the, the big rival, but it's just next door. Yeah, no, Biarritz is very expensive. And, and actually people in the Basque, in the, what they call the North Basque Country, not to say the French Basque Country, uh, I, I, there was a kind of a really serious row in the, uh, recently of locals saying we can't afford houses anymore because all the tourists buy the, the, the houses, the traditional houses, and it's, it's become very difficult to find houses for, for normal people. You know, they, they have the same problem in Annecy, uh, near the Swiss border. So yeah, that, that, that's a real real estate well problem. For well, the it locals. feels a very nice, very wealthy town, and as you say, Francois, we're still in the Basque country, and it was stage three, so it's time for the tale of the attack. It's time for the tale of the attack. Well, stage three, 193 and a half kilometers from Amore Bieta Echano to Bayonne. And Mitch, you called it absolutely perfectly yesterday because you said that Nielsen Paulus would try and go in the break just to cement his position in that King of the Mountain jersey. You'd actually identified the first climb of the day, which came sort of seven or eight kilometers in. But Paulus was quicker off the mark than even that. He went pretty much as soon as Christian Prudhomme pulled in the flag to signal the start of the stage. I doubt Prudhomme had time to even fold the flag back up and put it back into its gold case ready for tomorrow's stage uh, because Paulus was up the road and he was soon joined by Laurent Pichon of Arkea Samsic and the pair of them got away and built a, a lead that would see them through to, well, at least the final third of the stage. Uh, not an awful lot happened after that, to be perfectly fair. Um, there was a brief attack by yesterday's stage winner, Victor Lafay of Cofidis, because he wanted to snaffle up a few more points in the green jersey competition, which he did. So he uh, actually ended the day today tied with our stage winner, Jasper Philipson. So uh, they're tied in the points competition. But uh, Paulis and Pichon pressed on. 
And then once Paulis had got the points at the top of the last climb of the day, he sat up and waited for the peloton, allowed Pichon to go solo. And there were huge crowds for um, out on the course and lots of cheers for Pichon, a Breton rider. Maybe the Basques were supporting him because, you know, they share a taste in headwear, don't they, Francois? But the, the Breton beret and the Basque beret are similar. The Breton hat is, is because, because we say in French there's a very famous song, uh, I'm going to sing it. Okay, that's it. I haven't sung yet. Yeah, so <laughs> it's, it goes: Ils ont des chaperons, vive la Bretagne. Ils ont des chaperons, vive les Bretons. Which means they have round hats. Long live the Bretons. They have they have round hats. So the the, the, the typical Breton hat as a, as an edge, not like the beret. So yeah, but anyways, yeah, there, there's lots in common between the Bretons and the Basque. Well, Pichon was out there until 44 kilometres to go when he was caught, and then it was all down to the sprint finish, which we're going to unpick in the next part. But the headlines are that Jasper Philipson of Alpecin de Kerning was the fastest of the lot. He won the stage ahead of Phil Bauhaus of Bahrain Victorious, not quite victorious today, Bauhaus, and Caleb Ewan of Lotto Destiny third. And behind them were Fabio Jakobsen, Wout van Aert, Mark Cavendish in sixth, Jordi Meus, Dylan Grunewig and Mads Pedersen and Brian Cockar, they rounded out the top 10. Biniam Gamay was 11th for Antomarche. And overall, no change at the top of the GC. Adam Yates still holding on to that yellow jersey ahead of his Team UAE teammate, Tadej Pogacar, who is six seconds back, and his twin brother, Simon Yates. Lafay still in fourth place. Van Aert, fifth. Vingegaard, sixth. And Michael Woods seventh now the little reshuffle at the bottom of the GC uh, around the top 10 Lander has gone from ninth to 11th and Carlos Rodriguez and Matthias Gelmoser have moved up a place each that's because uh, the count back on the stage result means that Lander just slips down uh, they're still tied on time uh, as I said Lafay and Philipson are tied on 80 points and uh, Lafay will wear the green jersey again tomorrow Paulis has stretched his lead in the King of the Mountains 18 points he has ahead of Pogacar 7th one other notable little thing for British listeners the national champion Fred Wright had a little tumble mid-stage I was at the Bahrain bus and asked how he was nothing more than scrapes uh, cuts and bruises on his elbow all good for him to go tomorrow so there we are another sprint stage tomorrow but we're going to focus on what happened in that run into Bayonne in the next part the cycling podcast at the 2023 Tour de France is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. This is Science in Sport's chief executive, Stephen Moon, who instigated the partnership with the Tour de Lunsar in Sierra Leone, talking about the initial challenges they had to overcome just in getting Science in Sport products into the country in the first place. We would send out a quantity of... Um, of nutrition and then when it got to the port at the other side we'd be handed a bill that was nine times the value of the material and said that's what you've got to pay us to get it in Um, and then I would say no and then they come back and give you another massive sum but it was still four times Um, and at one stage I said well just forget about it then Um, and at that stage the product all went missing and I'm told that if there's any breakdown in communication, then any product, whatever it is, sports nutrition or umbrellas or whatever, then just gets sold on markets in in Freetown. So the first lot went missing. Um, and then we um, 
Kareem, Kareem's a very, very resourceful man. He'd, um, he'd managed to set up a charity exemption. If we wrote a letter in exactly the right way, and I mean word perfect way, we then found we could get product into the country without all this um, excessive taxation. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. If you want to check out the full range of energy products, go to scienceinsport.com. Mitch, you had eyes on the sprint finish this afternoon and you've watched it back a couple of times. What did you make of the run-in and the various lead-out work and what it was that enabled Jasper Philipson to win a stage pretty much well at the first attempt for the sprinters? On TV, that sprint didn't look as hard as I think it was. It was actually quite a hard sprint. Even the final rise into the last, you know, 2K to go, that was quite a hard rise, quite a steep climb. Climb, not a climb. It was a hard rise. You know, hard for sprinters, um, and it's also hard for lead-out men to gauge the effort they do up there for their sprinters. We saw that with Casper Arscreen. I was speaking to Michael Morkov after the, the sprint, and he said that he was going much too fast up there but that's hard to gauge that when you're on the front you're trying to get up you're trying to stay in front of the other riders so there was a lot of stuff going on in this sprint today it wasn't a textbook sprint personally i thought quick step did an amazing job they were the only team that had control in the last 10k they hugged the left hand side as you can see they had el tractor up there doing turns with dries devonins those two were just doing turn for turn, keeping the pace very high. Then we saw Eve Lampard come in a bit earlier than I thought. I thought he would have been saved for a bit later on. Casper Arsgreen slotting in behind him. The train looked great. We're going to hear from Michael Morkov. He explains what happened after that because it was quite interesting. At that moment there, right up until just inside a K to go, I thought they had it nailed and obviously it didn't work out for them. My eyes weren't at all on Alberson de Koenig. So for me, when I watched it back again, Ramon Singledam, the job that he did was phenomenal, actually. Sorry, Jonas Rickard. He not only held Mathieu van der Poel and Jabsov Philipsen behind on the side, he came up over that climb, sped up again, then he got caught on the side of our screen as they went through that corner, lost his speed, was able to regain his speed, and then dropped van der Poel into the beautiful position, which we then saw him do an amazing lead-out behind was very scrappy there were a lot of teams trying to get there and after speaking with Michael Morkov it was a much more messy sprint than I saw on the TV he said it was one of the most dangerous sprints he's done for a long time well let's hear from Michael Morkov or Mikkel Merku the Danish veteran now isn't he of uh, many many lead out successes for Sudal Quickstep and well it's been known as Quickstep for a long time now but this is Morkov talking to you after the finish Mitch mate how to go out there yeah, messy and crazy like we expected. Unfortunately, I waited uh, a second too long to, to launch and then it was too late. So we got uh, kind of uh, boxed in. I got sandwiched a bit on the last 500 meters and yeah, that, w- that was our sprint. All in all, the train looked very good on the hanging the left side of the road. You guys had control. The only team that stayed together was only those final few meters where I saw you look back when you guys lost each other there. Fabio, is that the only thing you can pull out of the sprint or there's other things that you want to work on? No, I mean, team was great. Uh, I was thinking on, on the run-in that this team really deserved a victory today. How everybody sacrificed himself for for me and Fabi being in a good position. Um, and also, we had a good run-in on the last two Ks. I had to dive back for Fabio. Um, we were sitting good. I was comfortable in, in my legs. But like I say, I, I, I waited a second too long. 
uh, I had the feeling that I needed to wait, but I think Metzger, he came over me and, and we got sandwiched and then you're not going to win a sprint. Can he win tomorrow? Sure he can. Uh, I also think he could have won today. He looks he looks very good and he's he's for sure very fast. So um, yeah, I'm disappointed I didn't succeed to put him in a position where he could actually head for the line. Yeah, my reading of that sprint finish was that Sudar Quickstep had probably the most conventional approach. They had more numbers and they were going through those numbers and really Askreen just lit it up too powerfully, didn't he? And 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 opened up the gap and and kind of fractured things and 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 maybe that made it a bit hard for them um as they were kind of coming round and 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 negotiating all of those uh, corners on the the run-in on the other hand Jasper Philipson I mean what an enormous boost but also sense of responsibility to have a rider of Matthew van der Poel's brilliance and well Palmares as a lead-out man I mean van der Poel could win a stage like this for himself surely and yet there he is pulling in a turn for a, a, a rider who we know is stage-winning uh, caliber, he won two stages last year, but it took him quite a while to get going, didn't it? In last year's tour, he didn't get his first stage until the midpoint of the race in Carcassonne, and then, of course, won on the Champs Elysees in Paris. But he's off the mark uh, very early on, and well, he he was kind of paying tribute to his teammate, as sprinters often do. But having Van der Poel as your last man, that must give you such a sense of confidence going into the finale. Or does it give you a sense of, well, I can't mess this up now. I've been dropped off in the right position. He had a lot of confidence. You know, we heard in the interview after the stage in the press... In the press... Um, conference. Conference. To use that word again, conference. He was, he was very confident. He said, you know what? His comments exactly were... We don't need to crash today. If we get it right and we get room, we'll go for it. If we don't, that's okay. Couldn't believe to hear him say that. No, no pressure, the first sprint stage. And I really did believe that he was very confident about, you could see he was the strongest today. He's the fastest and he's the strongest. That was a sprint today of a sprinter who is fit and strong. It wasn't, as you know, because of those, that running, because of the hecticness, because of the small climbs, the sprinter had to feel fresh to be able to produce that sprint at the end of all that. And it was clear, he's not only the fastest, but he is the freshest, the strongest. Yeah, there was a question during the press conference you mentioned about someone asked him, it was the last question actually, do you think you're the best sprinter in the world right now? And the, 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 the answer was, you, you, usually in this kind of uh, context, you, you, you make a humble uh, reply like, well, no, you know, it's far... It, it, he actually didn't, you know, wink or anything. He, he, he said, well, we'll have to wait until Paris to say that. But you could tell that ju- just not saying no meant if he thinks yes, you know. Mm. And, uh, and and going back on the Wolfpack and the Sudal Quick Step uh, uh, sprint, as you said, uh, the setup was, was almost perfect until, as you say, Asgreen went a little bit too hard. But the, the, the main person missing in that sprint by Sudal Quick Step was Fabio Jakobsen himself. You know, who just couldn't follow the plan, and uh, well, I'm, I'm sure we'll see more of Jakobsen. Probably, maybe tomorrow there's another sprint stage looming. But yeah, but once again, I was re- really impressed by uh, Alpecin, the Koenig, uh, not train, but I mean set up and the confidence in in the all uh, in their all operation, and uh, they'll be hard to beat. 
At the finish, I headed to the Lotto Destiny bus because the third man over the line was Caleb Ewan, who, Francois, we remarked in our tour preview, hasn't won a tour stage since 2020, and that feels like quite a long time ago now. He wasn't all that far away, and I think he took quite a bit of confidence from the way he was riding today and how he managed to sort of open up and have a proper sprint at the line. So this is Caleb Ewan of Lotto Destiny. As we expected, a very hectic finish. Uh, you know, the first few stages of the tour, especially the sprints, are always very hectic. Um, and yeah, you know, with the, the last K, it's like slightly always bending. So you know, if you if you go to move on one side, the door shuts, and if you go to move on the other side, the door shuts. So I had to be patient, but uh, yeah, I was a bit too patient because I was a bit too far back to, to start. The first few days, I've uh, yeah, they were tough, but I felt good. Um, I felt good again today, so. Yeah, I think there's a, a lot of positive signs, but um, yeah, you know, it'd be nice to get the win and, and take the pressure off straight away. But yeah, it's not the, the first time I haven't won the first sprint, so I'll keep going and, you know, there's more opportunities and uh, I'm going to stay pretty positive that I can uh, get a stage here. It was reasonably straightforward. Uh, it had the potential to be a lot harder. But yeah, luckily uh, a small break went at the start, only, uh, only two guys and uh, yeah, they weren't riding so hard. So in the end, it was a pretty, pretty straightforward sprint day, but yeah, very nervous, but yeah, I mean, we expected that. Uh, the first few stages of the tour always are, so um, yeah, I don't think there was any big crashes, which was good. So uh, yeah, got through unscathed, which is the main thing. There's a lot of good sprinters here this year. I think the, the sprint field compared to last year um, is a lot better. Uh, everyone's super strong. All the teams are, are super strong. So, you know, it's not really the, the normal classic. One team does the lead out and, and everyone fights for the back of that team. It's hard to know who to follow now. Um, the first few years I did the tour, there was usually always one team that was that was the strongest, and if you lost your team, you'd just follow them. But yeah, now it's uh, it's a little bit too confusing to who who to follow. You know, I was on Jakobsen's wheel, and then when uh, Philipson came past, I didn't know should I go onto his wheel, and and there was just a big fight behind as well. So it's a lot harder to judge now. Well, the big question is still there to be asked, isn't it? Can Mark Cavendish win the unmentionable 35th Tour de France stage win in his career and claim that record outright? Well, it wasn't too bad today, was it? Sixth place overall. Mitch, you spoke to Mark Renshaw yesterday about what they were planning for today. It's not like Astana have got, you know, an embarrassment of lead-out train riches. They're trying to kind of cobble something together out of the resources they've got. Mark Cavendish has got all the experience in the world. And at the finish, well, Francois, you were around the Astana bus as Mark Cavendish reacted. And I spoke to Mark Renshaw to see what his assessment was. So actually, it was job complete there. It was just down to me trying to find the right wheels after that. I was okay. Just uh, happy with the speed. I think 500 metres to go. I was like, I don't know, not even in the top 10, maybe 15 positions to, to run up and finish. Sick I was, was I? Obviously, I'd like to win, but uh, I know the speed's there. We said at the beginning, I was like... That's not the best finish for me with the kind of downhill run. It suits a, a guy with massive torque, someone like Jonathan Milan or uh, Wout Van Aert or someone who can put a 56 gear and get that running. Philipson was just that last 200 for me. But before that, to get on top of the gear, I had to wait till it went up and then I could feel the cadence. So 100 metres later, it's more, 100 metres further with that uphill, it's more of a sprint for me, but uh, how it was, I'm happy. I'm, I'm happy with that. Um, 
can take confidence for, for, for the next days. Sixth, it may yet become fifth because the commissaires are looking at the finish. How much did the, the homework, the, I know Grazie. Mark Renshaw has been putting in a lot of homework into these finishes, how much did that help today? Helped a lot, not just in the final, a little bit there. The last 25k with them climbs, the little kicks, knowing exactly just how long they were, how to stay up there, where to move up before the roundabouts. It helped an awful lot. With what he said, he nailed it, and the boys nailed that for me. See, Louis Leon was always with me. Case was always with me. We knew Alberson would nail it. I was quite happy to try and sit with them. Um, but I always had the boys just move me up, give me space on the roundabout, so that I had to spend as little energy as possible, you know. Um, yeah, super, super happy. Super happy. Yeah, we'll try. It's a different one. I've never finished on a on a motor racing circuit at the Tour before having other races, but it might be a bit different at the Tour de France. We'll have to see, I think it's new for everyone. We're quite looking forward to it. It'll be another flat day, actually, it'll be easier today. Today wasn't that easy still. Um, so I think the Peloton will look forward to kind of a flatter day tomorrow. Hopefully uh, the wind is all right as well. I'm confident in, in my form, I'm confident in, in how the team's going. Um, and we look forward to the next sprint opportunities. So if you had a chance to review the sprint, watch it a second time, or are you just going on uh, first impressions? Just uh, first impressions. Yeah, I, I watched in the back of the bus with Vino. I think it's good, good start. We all want him to win, but we also don't have quick step lead out. We can take a lot of positives from today. You know, he's frustrated because he thinks he had better legs than six, which is fair enough. I think he's happy. What was the plan and did it go to plan? Yeah, look, we, we executed the exact plan that we came up with this morning. You know, I gave them the intel and it was spot on. Everything I gave them was exactly what I, what I thought uh, and what we previewed. And I think there was just one moment at 1.3 kilometers to go where he needed to be on the right wave. He wasn't in the right wave and that's the five spots that he, he misses. And how do you assess the sprinting at the moment? Because it's very different to your day, isn't it? When you had the train and everything kind of slotted into place and you really, well, you took charge, you dominated, you delivered yeah. win after win. I think now I, there's so many riders in contention. I think that was pretty much the same today. Quickstep was by far the strongest. They had the numbers there, but they didn't have the sprinter there. Jakobsen just lost it in the final. I think Philipson showed he, he was the strongest, but as far as leadouts go, Quickstep was what I would call an old school leadout. They they were on the front the whole time and pretty much dominating until the final K. Clean sheet of paper for tomorrow. Go again. Yeah, I, I think it's great. I think he's going to take a lot of confidence and tomorrow, although it's not a boulevard sprint like we traditionally like in Tour de France, it's finishing on a race circuit with a lot of corners, so we'll see. Pretty upbeat from Cavendish, Renshaw and the Astana camp then and maybe they feel that they weren't all that far away. I mean, it may be, according to Renshaw, they're hinged on one moment and if that moment had gone slightly differently, Cavendish might have been a bit closer to Philipson when it came to the final sprint to the line. What did you make of the Cavendish performance today? Yeah, look, initially I expected him to be up there a bit more but there was just... I struggled to follow, I was trying to track him watching it first time and I struggled to find him and I could see Sanchez moved him up and I think it was hard for him not having that train. I think, you know, in looking to the future, 
future sprints, I think with the power of Cess Bowl, I think it's a good idea if they come as a surprise together with the power of Cess Bowl. They go. I think if I think the best chance for, for Mark now, you know, today I think wasn't the right stage for him, and he did very well considering those you know the difficulties of that stage. But looking looking to the next stages is that. Cesspol comes with a lot of power. They don't have the train. They don't have the train to line it out like Quickstep do. They've got to come with an element of surprise. They can do that. And he showed he's got the form now on such a hard stage. It's such a messy sprint. He was still there. I think there's still hope. It was a messy sprint, wasn't it? There was a lot of shoulder barging, a lot of uh, you know coming together and taking the full width of the road, and then all you know squeezing back together again. I think those corners, the roundabouts, and then the tight corner made everyone pretty nervous. But actually, for a first sprint stage in the Tour de France, you know it was relatively. Uh, incident-free, wasn't it? There was no big crash in the running. There was no crash in the finale. Maybe the two days in the Basque Country has kind of settled everyone down a bit. The GC at least has some kind of order. And we saw, okay, maybe not the cleanest sprint in the world, but we saw a relatively incident-free sprint. But, of course, at the finish, there was a little bit of speculation, wasn't there, Francois, that maybe Philipson would be relegated for the way he moved across or, or, or certainly the way that Wout van Aert was pinned on the barriers. That's right. I mean, yeah, the, the, the Belgians, are, as, <laughs> as they often do, were a little bit uh, frustrated by the result in spite of everything, you know, and they, because they, they usually support van Aert more than they, would, they do uh, Philipsen. And, but, uh, so it was, it was, you know, it was all about, was it a clean sprint, you know? The, it's true that at, at, at the very, you know, at, at the, on uh, not the last stretch because there, there was a slight corner, you know, uh, towards the end. Uh, Philipson being the right line, obviously went right a little bit, but that was the line to to take if he wanted to win. And 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 Van Aert had chosen to be, you know, but when you go, you know, along the fence, as you know much better than me, you know, uh, Mitch. Obviously, you, you you take chances because uh, mm. more often than than not, the the door will be closed, you know. And but actually. Uh, Philipson didn't close the door. He, he, he went just a little bit close to Van Aert, and then when it might have become dodgy, he straightened up and went for uh, for the win. So, in my opinion, there was absolutely no problem with that sprint. I mean, I had a, a, a personal little scare when I was coming back from the uh, from the buses. I bumped into a uh, team manager we know well uh, a team manager who manages uh, one of the uh, uh, f- um, you know many Australian teams in the, <laughs> in the peloton narrow it down a bit <laughs> <laughs> told me oh, you, uh, did you hear the news you know Philipson has been disqualified I don't know if he was if, you know if he was serious or not you never know with uh, this man but uh, you know I, I was I was pretty you know when I went, got back to the press room he looked so serious I thought you know Philipson might have been disqualified and, and it would have been you know, what my favourite French, uh, English word, uh, if that had been the case. Well, maybe that sports director was hoping for a, another six disqualifications so <laughs> that uh, his man would be <laughs> the eventual winner of the stage. But Mitch, I mean, what is the rule in the sprinting game there? If you're on the barrier, do you have kind of total right of way on the barrier or can the rider that's just inside you stick to their line? Because the, the barriers kind of change the shape of the road, but... So it's kind of contradictory. A rider can stick to his line pretty well and yet squeeze the space available to the rider on the inside. Look, I think there could just be, in general, no erratic moves. You know, like, if the door closes on the barriers, 
it, it is a it is a hard place to come through on the barriers because the door can slightly get closed. If you radically close that door, you're going to get disqualified. But if you're holding your line and ever so slightly, you know, close that door, I don't think I think you'd really be struggled to get disqualified. Um, you put yourself in that position, Van Art. I don't. I can't remember the sprint just exactly now. Why he was on that side? Maybe it was the only choice he had. I have need to rewatch it again. But generally, you want to have that open room. And as a lead-out man, what you want to do is you want to choose the side of the road and only allow your sprinter to come through on the barriers. So you can only be opened up to attacks on one side of the road. If you lead out down the middle, you're going to have sprinters coming on the left and the right. So to, you can use the barriers to your advantage in that sense. And then as the lead-out man is finished with his job, he simply shuts the door. So you can you can politely close the door on somebody, but you can't slam it shut on them. Exactly. Well, it feels like the tour is in full swing. I always start to relax a little bit when we get into that rhythm of moving each day and you get to the press room and there's a bit of time to sort out the work that's got to be done and, and have a chance to properly watch the race, get out to the finish and, and uh, pay attention to what's going on in the rush to the line. And then, of course, the mad scrum around the team buses before, uh, well, before we find somewhere pleasant to record as we have tonight. This afternoon, I was beavering away, finishing off a few kilometre zero episodes that are coming up this week. Our Basque extravaganza has turned into a mini-mini series and that will go out tomorrow. In that, I spoke to an author, Michael Thompson, who's written a book about Francesco Cepeda, who was the first rider to die in an accident in the Tour de France in 1935. And Michael feels that Cepeda is kind of the forgotten victim of the Tour de France. There are memorials to Tom Simpson and to Fabio Casatelli, who died in the race, but Cepeda has not been kind of officially or really unofficially recognised by the Tour organisers, and he would like to change that. He's also uh, delved into the story to try to find out the truth of exactly what happened to Cepeda when he died in a stage in the Alps in the 1935 tour. Really fascinating story actually and uh, well Michael Thompson is one of a number of people who feature in our deep dive into the Basque country and Basque cycling. Uh, Francois' tour tales will continue as well at some point and we're also going to be looking at the phenomenon of Velo Viewer and uh, the Le Puy de Dom or Le Puy Prudhomme as perhaps we will be calling it by the end of the week. Anyway, next up, a little bit of fallout from yesterday because I was talking to our Dutch colleague Hans Rugenberg, works for one of the big Dutch newspapers and he of course is very well embedded with the Jumbo Visma team, he knows everything that's going on there and he was telling me about the fallout from yesterday's stage finish where Obviously, Wout van Aert was left disappointed because Victor Lafay pulled a fast one. I should also just say, L'Equipe's headline today was genius. Victoire Lafay. I really enjoyed that. That was, a, that was a good one. Wout van Aert apparently threw his water bottle down at the finish, didn't talk to any reporters, and the Belgian press have got very excited about this and have decided that there's a big rift in the team between van Aert and Vingegaard. And the Belgian reporters have been kind of suggesting that in the finale, when Lafay went, Vingegaard should have worked. He should have jumped on the wheel as one of the only Jumbo Visma riders left to try and give Wout van Aert a chance of the stage win. 
Francois, I think your favourite word might come out here again, but what was your take on that? Should Vingegaard, as one of the favourites for the Tour, be working in a sprint finish yes, like, uh, like we saw yesterday? Absolutely no way. <laughs> I mean, you, you, can, you can do that maybe at the end of the Tour when the Tour is won and you're going to lead out your, your sprinter on the Champs-Élysées, which would be you know, great. And we've seen things. I remember Bradley Wiggins doing this sort of things or, well, Garen Thomas doing this for his mate. Cavendish in the Giro, but we we were on stage two of the Tour de France. Mm. With, with with I mean, remember, uh, actually, you can't accuse Jonas Vingegaard of that sort of things because in the in the Dauphiné, he, he actually led out a sprint for Christophe Laporte, which was very risky. I mean, why should a potential Tour de France winner, you know, who doesn't have the build and the know-how and the experience to do that sort of thing, take risks that take the risk of being, you know. I mean, it's dangerous to sprint, as you know, Mitch. And 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 a, a guy like Jonas Vingegaard has nothing to do in a, in in a bunch sprint. Why should he take the, the you know chances uh, early in the tour? I mean, no way. And he'd already done the policeman job, hadn't he? When Pogacar went for the sprint, obviously he was looking out for his own interests first and foremost. But then when they were clear and had a gap on the descent, Vingegaard didn't roll through and contribute and and keep stay away with Pogacar when. You could argue they could have gained some time over everybody else together. He sat on and waited for it all to come back together. I mean, it looked to me like Vingegaard did absolutely everything that was required of him. And then really it was down to the others, uh, Kelderman, Benut and Van Aert himself to tell you what, look after the finish. My impression is that the, uh, the, the all the Belgian excitement about Van Aert, I mean, I, I mentioned Philipson already, but... It's, it's probably the, the result of the Netflix series, you know? The, 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 this, this so-called rivalry between Van Aert and uh, Vingegaard has been played up by the Netflix series, always looking for, you know, dramatic thing, conflicts and rivalries and stuff. And, and I don't think that it, it really exists, but you know, it, it kind of instilled the idea in the Belgian uh, press mind that... Uh, these two guys were racing against each other which I don't think is the case No, I don't think it's the case either as we saw the work that Van Aert did for Vingegaard in the Tour last year but also Van Aert signed an extension to his contract with Jumbo Visma so if he was unhappy with the, the deal that he had there and the, the role that he would get in the Tour de France well, he could have gone to pretty much you know any team and, and more or less named his price to go to another team if he so wished so I think this is uh, the Belgians stirring things up a bit isn't it? And, uh, well, we'll see how it plays out. But Van Aert, it's going to be tricky for him, isn't it? Because, you know, he is a very fast finisher. But up against the sprinters, I mean, he could win. Do you think he can win, you know, either tomorrow on the motor racing circuit or in Bordeaux on Friday, Mitch? I think it needs, the race needs to get going a bit and the sprinters need to start getting tired. I think the race is just a little bit too early and the sprint trains are just a bit too much in play. It's very hard as an. Ind- I'm not saying I'm not writing him off because he is Van Aert, but as we saw today, uh, you know, having an extra couple of men to, to shield you up there to lead you out, that's the key at the moment. Let's talk about this in the second and even the third week. They're different sprints altogether, um, and that's when Van Aert still has that speed. He's just a machine at the moment. The big boys have still got the speed, plus they've got the team behind them. As regular listeners will know, the cycling podcast is supported by Map. 
the clothing manufacturers. They've made our brilliant cycling podcast jersey. And there's a whole range of accessories as well, a casquette, some socks, bidon. Go to map.cc, that's M-A-A-P.cc, to shop the whole range and check out the rest of the map clothing. Map are also sponsoring the London Summer Cross, which is a series of, I think, four cyclocross races around the Hernhill Velodrome, Fred Wright territory, that isn't it, Hernhill, and they are on July the 7th, 14th, 28th and August the 4th. If you, uh, well, if you Google uh, map London Summercross, you'll find out how to enter that or just go along and watch and have a, a great night watching some summer evening cyclocross. I've always thought cyclocross ought to be a summer sport as well as a winter sport because it's just fantastic fun and hours thrash round uh you know jumping off and on your bike have you done any you've done some cyclocross haven't you mitch i have i've done i was taught by the very best himself or a lot of the best themselves um i went down to the sven nice training center raced him around his own course a one lap dash who won sven got around me on the last corner and we were full it was a handicap so I, I started first, yeah. and then when we got to the stairs, if anyone's been there, he started, and it was on, and he does not hold back, and he <laughs> caught me on the last corner. I, I closed him up on the second last corner, and he came back around me. It was pretty fun. Francois, we saw Laurent Pichon, proud Breton in the break today, and well, you mentioned he was a baroudeur, and I just wondered, what's the difference between a baroudeur and a ruler? Yeah, well, a, a ruler is, is, is actually... It's, it's probably the word for a time travel specialist. It's someone who can collect watts and watts and watts and watts and watts for a long time. Uh, so so to, to, to break away, you, you need to be a, a good ruler. Otherwise, you, you don't hold uh, for a long time. But baroudeur, baroud means, means a kind of suicide, you know, kind of a suicide attack, you know, uh, or skirmish if you want. So the baroudeurs are guys who go on kind of su- suicide breakaways or you know or kind of suicide missions you know you can you can jump on that that stage and see what happens you know uh, you, if you don't come back we'll send you know a crown <laughs> a crown to your you know and flowers to your to your wife or something you know wow. so baroud is actually kind of a military word you know oh, okay. baroud is a, you know so is, is, yeah it's going like, on going on the mission that Almost certainly doomed to failure. Yes, it's like a raid, you know, like right. launching and baroud is like a raid. You know, you're going to raid the stage, so raid it, but mm. you know, knowing that you know you you probably won't uh, succeed. So that, that's the difference between baroud and, and Pichon. Uh, Pichon said, uh, kind of, a, he, he, he had not been back on the tour for five years, so you know, he obviously, and he obviously, apparently, didn't expect to be. Uh, called up by Arkia Samsung this year, so you know that that's the kind of rider who wants to to prove right. You know, you you gave me the go ahead to do the tour. I haven't done it for five years. I need to prove everybody that I'm not here by chance, and I and I, and I have to claim to make that, that that's what he did. And what about Nielsen Paulus as well? I mean, he's been on the attack all three days so far. He's hoovered up as many of the King of the Mountains points as possible. Clearly got his eyes on that jersey, maybe not just for the short term, but for the whole tour. I mean, he's a classy enough climber that he could do a kind of, uh, I don't want to use a Richard Vionk analogy, but uh, be that kind of climber who goes away day after day in the breaks and just hoovers up the points and really puts the puts a seal on that King of the Mountain jersey quite early. Yeah, well, I, I so I've actually, I've actually tried to curb that uh, 
kind of tactics, which I would rather call the uh, Jalabert Vöckler mm. tactics. You know, like like not real climbers, but you know, if you if you gather and collect so many points in the first uh, sta- uh, you know climbs of the day, then you you you, you know you, you you leave the uh, the real climbers and the GC contenders you know fight for that their own in the last climbs. But if you play it well. Uh, you, uh, you you can end up winning, and as I said, ASO try to to add you know more points on the on the horse category climbs and then on the, the final climbs to, to make sure your know, non climbers can't win the the, the the mountain classification. But the the, the, the flaw in, in that you know change of regulations is that Tadej Pogacar. Well, I mean more more mm. often than once, uh, the, the, the the Tour de France winner ends up being the the, the best climber as well, you know. So yeah, I, I think St. Paris has a, has a fair chance of doing that. I will get probably get back to it, but I love the way he celebrates it. Every time he was crossing the the, the line of a of a KOM to, to the, today, he was you know cheering the crowd, oh. you know uh, raising his arms. And uh, it seems to me, Mitch, Mitch thinks they've gone soft. All this high fiving with the fans, it's a it's a well, bright, yeah, not I mean, necessarily that. I, I think the breakaway, you know, the, the two breakaway. Um, Compatriots, I guess you know they were you know high fiving and and hugging and fist pumping after every every turn they did. I was thinking, <laughs> hang on a second here, is it two teammates, best mates? They're supposed to be racing each other to the death. <laughs> but I think it was trying to be entertaining. You know, I, I, my my impression is that Magnus Court, uh, you know, mm. south ah. of the tour in Denmark last year, set a precedent, and that EF have uh, kind of decided to be the entertainers of the start of the tour. We know that every year. IJV, you know, uh, mm. EFR, you know, kind of s- supposedly struggling financially and have to show the, the jersey and have to do something to stand out. And uh, and Magnus called Antics last year were probably an inspiration for Nilsson Paulus. We also know that Nilsson Paulus, who had quite a few successes this year, victories, I mean, the Grand Prix de la Marseillaise at, you know, mm. at home, uh, is... is, is Sometimes uh, you know the, uh, the EF guys tell you, Nilsson, you, you have to kind of you, you know put the brace on him because he is he, on he, he will be on the attack every single day, and uh, well for, for now he's, he's been what yeah what the entertainer of this. Well, maybe you have a day off tomorrow and, and go again in the Pyrenees. And I had a question for you, and I don't know if you know the answer yet. Has someone taken the KOM jersey day one and had it for the whole Tour de France? I don't, I don't think not. it's no. I don't think it's happened. No. But I, I could it I, be a first? Might be a first. I I, I haven't checked wow. to be honest. Uh, he could do it because he is he's a climber in his own right. And like yeah. you said, two days away, we've got the horse category climb in the middle of the stage where he can rack up a, a lot of points. And I think the following day there's also another horse category climb in the middle of the stage as well. It's a big ask, but could be done and dusted three days time. I was thinking today as we arrived in Bayonne, when did the tour last come here? I'm not sure if it was exactly the last time we were here, but in 2003, 20 years ago, Tyler Hamilton won the stage here, didn't, we? didn't he? After a, a big breakaway across the Pyrenees, of course, it came from the other direction. So it was a really hard stage over the mountains and he won by a couple of minutes, more or less. And that was the year that he crashed on day one and... Uh, fractured his collarbone or his shoulder and was really patched up and I think uh, did he there was a story about how he 
he was in so much pain he ground down his teeth and they needed to be capped at the end of the tour because the the, the first week of while his sort of collarbone was recovering was uh, was so painful and then of course he came out all guns blazing and won the stage here in Bayonne riding for Bayonne Arisi's CSC team different days indeed weren't they Francois some news that may well be leaking out about Paris and the 2024 Olympic Games I believe yeah so it's not it's nothing official and it's you know I, as you know I've been in the, in the game for a long time and I have my sources I, I, I heard uh, and once again it'll be confirmed tomorrow that there'll be an official statement we'll see whether my sources are good or not but apparently the uh, the Olympic road race is going to be one of the longest in history apparently the longest for over a century and the, the main thing that's uh, interesting it'll, uh, and you know for the show apparently the riders will be climbing the Montmartre hill three times in in a, in the in the final circuit so if, if that's the case yeah it'll be you know, tremendously exciting well we should wrap it up there but very lastly what about tomorrow l'étape de demain le dîner d'hier tomorrow's stage yesterday's dinner First of all, Hamon de Bayonne. <laughs> we had some in the press room, uh, some very well-connected people who are deeply ingrained in Spanish culture say that it's not a patch on, uh, on Hamon. I'll it's tell you more what. like a I'm, parma ham, I mean, isn't it? Uh, 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 a, good f- a good friend of the podcast, uh, you know, who, who now works for t- television uh, and is a great fan of uh, Italian food, would be glad to hear me say, you know, bad things about French food from time to time, which I, I think I'm, be, I'm being totally objective on that. And I'll tell you what, I'll tell you, Jambon de Bayonne, which is Bayonne ham, is all right. But, I mean, the, 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 the most average uh, ham you can find in Spain's supermarkets is better than Jambon de Bayonne. <laughs> To, but I mean, setting it up very da, da, nicely. Daniel, don't don't be too too happy. I think any Spanish ham is much better than than the best Italian hams anyway. And Mitch, what about tomorrow's stage? Stage four. Stage four. Yeah. Stage four let's talk about it. 181.8 kilometers should be a sprint tomorrow. There's not a lot going on really. It's a, only one cat four climb. There's a sprint at the 90 kilometer stage, uh, at the 90 kilometer mark. I sort of saw it as a bit of a transitional day across to the Pyrenees because then we've got two really big stages in the Pyrenees. I'm excited. Sprint stage tomorrow, a real sprint stage. And finishes on a motor circuit, motor racing circuit. It does too. Sorry, I forgot to mention that. Finishes on a motor circuit, which is, I thought, not common, but not that uncommon. Um, You know, every so often, maybe it's just in the Vuelta. I think I've maybe done two or three in the Vuelta. Um, they're very hard to gauge, motor circuit sprints. Very, very hard. Because, of course, motor circuits are set up for cars or motorbikes going at 200 kilometres an hour, 100. Not bikes going around the corner at 50 or 60k an hour. So the corners feel big and slow, and there's plenty of room for people to come and attack you. So it's very hard to gauge it with the team, the timing. Even though we're just sort of saying how dangerous these other sprints are, the more small the roads are, the more technical it is. If you get the front as a sprint team, it's glorious. Very hard for people to attack you. Motor circuit, complete opposite. 
Well, Mark Renshaw made the comment, didn't he, about the sort of boulevard-style finish. I mean, you can't get more boulevard than a motor racing circuit. It would be nice and wide. And, well, I remember Sam Bennett winning at Imola in the Giro a few years ago. And, and you're absolutely right. It feels like everything kind of slows down a bit. And the motor racing circuit l- makes a cyclist look sort of almost underpowered at times. Uh, but it does present a fantastic opportunity for a real uh, marquee sprint between six, eight, ten riders. And it will probably put a lot more pressure on the lead-out guys as well, I guess. But we'll discuss all of that tomorrow because we need to go for our final Basque dinner of this year's Tour de France. So, Mitch, thank you very much. Thank you. And Francois, thank you. I can say merci. We're in France now. (laughs) The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burney. Thank you.